Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937, now with more than 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. Online at joneswalker.com. Additional support comes from Fidelity Bank, Resource Management LLC, Luba Workers Comp, and 30 North Investments. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Most people who start a new business build on what's come before them. Every now and again, there's a revolutionary game changer like Apple's iPhone. But coming up with a totally new product is not the rule. It's the exception. And that's what makes Al Andrews exceptional. When Al founded Task in 2009 with three other members of his family, he didn't just change the design of sports apparel. He created a whole new fabric, workout wear that's made from bamboo. Today, Task products can be found in stores across America, and they're spreading around the world. Task CEO and Chairman Al Andrews, welcomed out to lunch. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. When a business like Task gets successful, one of its options is to go public. That opens the door for exponential growth, but it also means that entrepreneurs who have good reason to trust their own judgment now have shareholders to answer to. And those shareholders don't always approve of you, even if you did dream up the whole company. Ron Bienvenu is co-founder of Spearpoint Capital. Spearpoint specializes in using a shareholder stake in a public company to get involved and make changes. Uh, Ron, welcome out to lunch. Oh, it's great to be here. <laughs> now, Al, you and Ron are both revolutionaries. You look at a landscape and you see things other people don't. In your case, you looked at millions of people wearing workout clothes and saw an opportunity to sell them, something completely different. Uh, walk us through that entrepreneurial process. The big question I think of is why didn't you, for example, come up with an idea for a new fabric and simply sell it to Nike? Why'd you decide to actually take on Nike and Adidas and every other apparel company in the world? Well, uh, that's a very good question, but uh, the reason, uh, I want to do it from A to Z. I didn't want to just do part of it and, and pass it off or sell it. Might have been more lucrative to do it that way. But what we wanted to do, uh, as, as a former athlete and very active still. And I'll brag on you because you won't. You were an all SEC player for Tulane in, the, in basketball, was it the mid 60s? Uh, yeah, 67, I graduated. Wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah. We're, not, we're no longer in the SEC, so. No, people right. Need to Actually, notice. my senior year, 1967, is when Tulane got out of the SEC. So through my junior year, we were in the SEC. Because the SEC was afraid of you. Uh, I believe that. Uh, that's one theory they, that's been uh, forth, but... Uh, now, the odd thing is, if we're talking about the Southeastern Conference, Ron, your life would be Security and Exchange Commission, would be the, uh, would be the <laughs> SEC. <laughs> so, when you say the SEC, right. that, that's SEC, SEC, yeah, I know she's shaking there. That's right. I apologize, Al. No, 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 that's fine. So, anyway, I saw out there, everything in the last 15 years is talking about performance athletic wear. And uh, there were some huge successes happening, one which was uh, Under Armour. Yep. And they came out of nowhere, a guy coming out of the University of Maryland, a walk-on football player, and he decided he wanted to do a synthetic and have it moisture wick and do these different things. So he did it, and he marketed it very, very well. 
during that time watching this because I've been in the industry a long time watching it and I'm thinking hmm this is really something I've always been a cotton guy polo Gant, Izod these uh, then later on Nautica Hilfiger etc don't like polyester but I love the way the growth was going uh, <laughs> working out at the Riley Center at Tulane yeah. which you know where that is yeah. Uh, with guys and we're working out really hard and uh, I'm in my cotton at the time and uh, they're in uh, their Under Armour and their polyester stuff and I'm saying you know I say hey you guys I got to go work on the other side you guys are stinking like crazy here <laughs> and they, yeah but we're wicking moisture we, we can do all these things I said well good for you but I tell you what it's getting kind of gross in here so uh, anyway it, it, it was humorous but uh, I started thinking about that and thinking about it, and I went back to my office and my sons, and we were talking, and I said, you know what, if we can come up with something that'll moisture wick and quick dry and do all these things that this technology that's coming on, if we can duplicate that and get rid of the stink and get rid of, uh, you know, the raspiness of the cloth on your body, we can, we can uh, create a brand that can really uh, compete with these people. So that started it off, Peter, and it took two and a half years for us to, uh, to develop that fabric. So, uh, you know, I would not if I was looking for a smooth fabric, I would not have thought of the word bamboo. Why, how did that right. come yeah, about? Right, yeah, me either, to be yeah. honest with you. So we have uh, good connections with young people actually in India who uh, have our equivalent of PhDs in textile engineering. Uh, and are, are really, really uh, good at it. And uh, this young fella, I told him what we wanted to do. And, he, and didn't mention bamboo, didn't say anything. And I said, it's got to do all these things. It can't, you know, uh, it's got to moisture with quick dry. It's got to have UV protection, but I don't want it to stink. And I want it to be out of natural fiber. Now, what do we do? What do you suggest? So he started coming back with ideas, which we quickly rejected for one reason or another. Finally, he came up with bamboo and he sent some stuff in. I said, hmm, this beautiful hand feel, but it's like a ditch rag. It, uh, it won't hold a shape, it, you know, this is not going to work. But I love, the, I love the textile, so let's see what we can do. So next two years, trying to blend it, we blended it with organic cotton, and uh, we, you know, a lot of trial and error, getting the content right, and so on. So we have a patent pending on the fabric now. So anyway, finally it came that day, I'll never forget that day, it came and, I, you, know, you know, we had some big grins on our face, I, we think this is it. So uh, we took that uh, product, an actual shirt, and gave it to uh, some of our other athletic friends, big names, which I won't drop here, but you would all know their names. Okay. And say, hey, try this shirt and get back to me and tell me what you think. And work out like you always do, hard. So they did. I get a call back within the next morning. So this shirt's unbelievable. I, you know, I, not only did I work out in it and sweat through it, uh, but I, I went to it. a wedding in that same outfit. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, almost uh, like yeah. that. I'm getting psyched up when he's telling me this. And I'm, where's this going? He said, I, I actually threw it in the wash, uh, threw it in a dryer. I said, you did? Well, my wife did. Okay. So, and then, <laughs> and I actually slept in it. I want one in every color. And I said, okay, good. That's, that's a good testimonial. Thank you. But you're going to have to pay for the other colors. I don't have it anymore <laughs> right now. So that's how it started. And then we, and then we went over to Tulane, where I'm an yep. uh, alum, of course. And uh, Rick Dixon's a good friend. And uh, gave it to some of the athletes to try and do the same type of testing. And then we made a few more uh, refinements, and we were off to the races. But it took about two and a half years, really, to get to what we wanted to get. Well, now, Ron, to most of us, 
Al reimagining a new fabric for workout wear would seem revolutionary enough, but you go further. You reimagine the restructuring of entire companies, and in 2009, you wrote a book called The Fourth Shock, which partially reimagines the, the entire economy. You're a big picture thinker. When you get a public company in your sights and you decide you could move in and improve their performance, are the current stewards of that company pleased to see you or are they, they bolt in the door? Which one? <laughs> well, Peter, <laughs> um, uh, generally I kind of go with Einstein's quote, uh, you rarely get solutions from the same brains that created the problem. And if I show up, there's a problem. You know, if, if I'm invested in your company, you probably have a very good balance sheet, but you're operationally not very sound. And so our idea is to protect our downside risk by, by focusing on the balance sheet side of the business and then bringing new ideas to the operating side, which could include divesting divisions, buying stuff, restructuring. So we don't have a formula. We don't say the CEO's always out or the board, but generally that's, that's generally how it's going to be. So generally, I don't, I, I'm not really loved so much. Right. You know, Carl Icahn once said, if you want a friend on Wall Street, get a dog. And, uh, <laughs> and, so, and so I'm not here to make friends. And partially that's why I'm here in New Orleans, is because I spent 25 years in New York City and Greenwich, Connecticut. And yet you are a, a guy from St. Martinville, right? Yeah, I'm from rural Louisiana. And uh, I'm also an SEC guy, because I went to LSU. I'm sitting between your two lane guys. I'm feeling kind of <laughs> stupid. Uh, and so, and so, and so, uh, so uh, I left home. I, I, I went to LSU, ran out of money, went to the Army, uh, wrote code for the U.S. Army, went back to LSU, planned to stay, uh, but got a chance to go visit a friend in New York City, and I, I walked out of the train on Penn Station. I took a train from here, first time I ever rode a train in my life, and I walked out of the train station, and I'm on 7th Avenue, and I'm literally in New York 10 seconds. I'm like, this is it. And I went home, I sold everything I owned, $1,600 in my pocket, and I moved to New York City, didn't have a place to live, didn't have a job, nothing. And uh, so, I, so I love New York, I love Connecticut. <laughs> um, I'm asked the question all the time, why would you move a hedge fund to New Orleans, Louisiana? And, I, and one of my answers is, is, you know, for the last 40 years, as far as I can tell, the richest guy on Wall Street lives in Omaha, Nebraska. And so if he <laughs> can do Buffett, it from Omaha, right? yeah, I, yep. can do, I can do this. And it's better to be outside of the loop and to keep a fresh perspective. So that's, that's part of our thinking. But generally, the, the, the most challenging part of my day and the most rewarding is really doing that. You got guys from Harvard and Yale and Stanford who are running these companies and they're running them into the dirt. And so what's a poor kid from South Louisiana going to tell them, right? So it's fun to, to, to go in and see things differently. I think, you know, that's, that's what we do well at Spearpoint. I have a great team and great partners. Um, and yeah, we're trying to outsmart smart people. Give me the, um, the chronology. You, would, you find something, you take a, what kind of position? Is it? How many percentage of the stock you'd, you'd buy first? Yeah, so, um, so there's a lot of rules around trading stock that you know, we probably don't want to go into today, but basically if you own more than 5% of a publicly traded company, you know this, yeah, of course, but you have to disclose in the SEC, not, not, not the Southeastern Conference, the right, other guys, right. you know? And so, so Some what guy we, in Arkansas. So what we try to do is uh, <laughs> we try to find companies, like I said, with a, a strong balance sheet, maybe weak operations, and where you don't have a blocking shareholder. And what we mean by that is, so you know, now's company, Al owns a company. I can come in with the best idea in the world. If he doesn't want to do it, it's not getting done. And so, and so the same thing with public companies. If the CEO owns 40% of stock, you're almost no way you're going to move the needle there. So we look for a fragmented shareholder base where we can own between 5 and 10% and be one of the largest shareholders. And, and then 
then we start a conversation. I mean, uh, so I write the letters. I don't know if you've had a chance to read some of our letters. Yeah. We take great pride in them. Um, the first version is always so full of expletives that the lawyers go crazy and then they, they got to rip it all out. They're like, no, you can't say that. You can't say that. And uh, so there's a process. But basically, it's an idea that this company needs to change. The status quo's got to go. And here's some ideas on where we think we could unlock shareholder value. And they usually take it under advisement. Now, yeah. Tell me, when I first met you, you were working on a, a project that just seemed... Uh, almost odd to me in a way. You were taking a position in thestreet.com, which is Jim Cramer's, uh, who's the big guy on CNBC. Why, why, did, why did you do that? Was that, um, I mean, first of all, it seems kind of formidable. He has the, a great f uh, podium to, to speak against. The, we, how were you not scared to take on Jim Cramer? <laughs> so it was a company that was fundamentally unsound. And so here's a hypocrite that gets up on television every day and tells people how to improve their business. Just last week, he had the gall to say on Twitter that Twitter and Google should hire him because he's an expert at monetizing digital media. For those of you who don't know, Jim Cramer's company, when I bought the stock, it had $60 million of cash, no debt, and a $57 million market cap. And so the million. cash was worth more than the, the entire company. The market was paying for yeah, it. Theoretically, they would pay you $3 million to take this business off their hands, right? Because that's, that's basically what the math comes down to. Because what you, people may not understand, when you buy a company, you don't just buy the operating side of the business, you also buy the balance sheet. And so, so if you wrote a check, so in that, that particular case, theoretically, I could write a $57 million check and buy that company. That's the market capitalization of the company. But I'd get $60 million off the balance sheet. So I'm actually $3 million ahead day one. Now, of course, it's burning money, so you're going to have to deal with right. all that. So we just saw an opportunity where there was a, a very poorly run company that was not giving back to shareholders. Um, we wrote a, one of our letters was prominently uh, displayed at, on the New York Post, front page of the New York Post, and the headline was Blamer versus Kramer. And so I was blamer, and uh, and I compared him to Alex Rodriguez, who's the, who's the <laughs> New York Yankees nice. ball player who couldn't hit a ball to save his life. And I said, you know, at some point, it's not how much money you make, it's how good you are. And Jim Cramer has consistently not delivered to shareholders. I mean, the stock went from $16 a share to $1 a share uh, in, during his tenure, and, and he's made tens of millions of dollars off of this business. So we just saw that it would be a high-profile deal, it would be a good one to get, get started. Now, uh, do, you have a, um, do you have a board of directors or a board of an yes. advisory board? I guess yeah, directors? yeah, we have a board of directors. Okay. We have seven, seven uh, member board of directors. If I named them to you, you'd know a lot of them probably. Just like those celebrity athletes you can't tell me about. <laughs> yeah. We can beat this out of you at some point. There's uh, they, uh, right. Except for you're very large. Maybe so. if yeah. I get, <laughs> maybe if I get dessert. Thing, huh? Okay, get maybe dessert, that, that's why we put the sherry in the turtle soup. They... <laughs> We're going to go to our inbox, and that's where our producer picks a question that's come in from a listener over the past week. Uh, Grant, what have you got? Peter, we're going to try something a little different this week. We don't actually have a listener question. Oh, yeah. We have a listener question live. Oh, wow. We have a live audience so here today to at Commander's Palace. It's a, a group of women who are local investors. Oh, so all right. I'm going to hand the mic over to one of them, and, or two of them, and see if you have this Louise has a question. I have a question for Al. Is it difficult working with family? It's absolutely wonderful, and I know it can go one of two ways, and thank goodness we went the right way. Uh, it's brought us closer together, actually. doesn't mean everything is agreed upon every day on all issues, but uh, I don't know. It's just uh, the chemistry and the feeling has been phenomenal. 
Is it just luck or is there some str family I don't strategy? Know, really. I don't know, I haven't tried to analyze it because yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy it's that way. You just keep giving out free shirts and everybody uh, seems fun. Is that, right, is that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We try and respect each other and do our thing and not be too, uh, uh, you know, not condescending, but, you know, get in the other person's area too much. And does everybody you know? have a different role? Yes, yes. And then, and, you know, and as a... Of course, you know, we started the company from scratch, so the roles, uh, everybody has a separate role now, more or less. At the, t at the first part, everybody had all roles, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> right. So that, maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. Ron, when you were growing up, what was your ambition? Well, that's a good question. Um, I always tell people, I spoke yesterday to LSU Law School, and I told them, I've really never really had a plan. I, I, I've never really had a master plan. I didn't plan to be a hedge fund guy. I really didn't plan to be a software guy. I liked software a lot young I taught myself to write software in the 70s and 80s and so uh, so my plan was to do something in in, in science and engineering and that kind of led into software and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time when software really took off so it's not you know it was a lot easier to be an entrepreneur I think in the seven in the 80s and 90s than it is today in, in what way I mean we always hear this is a uh People use the term now. They didn't even use the term back yeah. then. Why do you think it was easier? I think I think it's easier because you could hide for longer. You know, today any good idea is spread instantly. So the big guys can move in a lot more quickly. Um, the story I used to have, you know, in the fifties, if you wanted to compete with McDonald's and you had an anchovy and peanut butter hamburger, right? Sounds terrible, but it, people are lining up for it. You might have months, years to develop that idea in a regional chain and then grow. And that's what makes Al's business really fascinating because he's competing with the big guys on a regional level and outperforming them. That's pretty impressive. Um, so, so I just think it's part of what I wrote in the fourth shock that the global information system is taking good and I bad ideas and instantly disseminating. So it changes the competitive landscape for entrepreneurs and, and innovation. And it's, 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 I think it's a lot more challenging today. Than in, than the 80s when I was writing software in the 80s, nobody knew what I was doing. I mean, you know, I could I could walk into a CEO's office in the 90s, SageMaker, and I would say, "You ever heard of Bhopal?" And the CEO would be a CEO of Shell or Exxon, and they'd sit there like, "Bhopal, the camel plant that blew up." I'm like, "Yeah." In the year 2000, if you don't buy my software, there's a chance your chemical plant will blow up. Wow, that's good. Good way to get their attention. Yeah, dang right. They, uh, dang right. And, and that'll be $100 million. Uh, and so, and so, so you were an entrepreneur before it was cool. That's, I was, and before so. it was hard. <laughs> Al, Ron, I want to take a minute to introduce you to Robert Armbruster. Now, we met Robert through 52 businesses who specialize in uncovering entrepreneurs in the very, very early stages of development. Uh, Robert's entrepreneurial idea is called Landing Zone NOLA. And I'm going to give Robert one minute to tell you about it, and then I'm going to give each of you a chance to ask Robert one question, a question that you think he'll need to be able to answer to move his business forward. Um, let's go, Robert. Uh, give me a minute. Thanks. Th thanks for having me. Um, the Landing Zone is a co-working space that I built strictly for veterans to develop a camaraderie and a collaborative workspace for vets that are returning with a niche on government contracting. So currently I just finished building a 25,000 square foot co-working space that can house up to about 100 startup companies with different sizes of private offices, private desks, co-working spaces. We also offer a gym, fitness center, uh, copy services, reception services uh, for that. So with that, this is a pilot program that we're doing in New Orleans and hope to take this to other military-friendly cities throughout the country. 
What do you get for him? <laughs> well, I, I, I'd like to know, um, do you, how much interface or uh, regulations and so on uh, would your company have to be involved with the federal government to get this up and running? Our model is, our, the commodity in our business is actually the veteran. So we're trying to form relationships with prime contractors and we'll try to find the right source of the contract and then we're going to pair that vet up with the prime form, we're going to help them go through the different VA certification processes that they have to go through to get certified. That's the only regulation. They have to go through a VA certification process, which can take six to nine months. Is this a for-profit business or? Yes, I actually had started a for-profit version of this, which is the landing zone. And then I have a non-profit bolt-on called Vet Launch that is strictly a nine-week accelerator program that we partner with the Idea Village on that we bring in right now our first group is five vets that went through an application process that we're putting through a nine-week training program and it culminates with the New Orleans Entrepreneur Week. The landing zone is strictly a co-working space that is a for-profit. Robert, thanks so much for coming by today. We'll look forward to following your progress with the Landing Zone NOLA. We're going to stick around a little longer after the show and talk some more about Landing Zone NOLA. You'll be able to hear the rest of that conversation with Robert Armbruster on our website, itsneworleans.com. Al Andrews, Ron Bienvenu, you've both launched new businesses within the last six or seven years. You're both entrepreneurs who a few years earlier would most certainly have had to leave New Orleans to accomplish what you're doing. It's been great to meet you and thank you both for uh, joining me on Out to Lunch. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Terrific. A lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> My guests at Out to Lunch today have been Al Andrews, CEO and Chairman of Task Performance and Ron Bienvenu, co-founder of Spearpoint Capital. You can find out more about Tasks, tasks, this is great. And the finer points of Spearpoint by following the links on our websites, www.no.org and itsneworleans.com. Our show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday through Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music and dinner seven nights a week. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. The oddly insightful Jennifer Smith is our researcher. Uh, Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can get the show as a podcast. You can listen to past shows and you can keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our websites. It's neworleans.com and wwno.org. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting and WWNO for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business, New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937, now with more than 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. Online at joneswalker.com. Additional support comes from Fidelity Bank, Resource Management, LLC, Luba Workers Comp, and 30 North Investments.